This is a reading from Galatians 1, verse 11, to Galatians 2, verse 10. For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard, no doubt, of my earlier life in Judaism. I was violently persecuting the Church of God and was trying to destroy it. I advanced in Judaism beyond many among my people of the same age, for I was far more zealous for the traditions of my ancestors. But when God, who had set me apart before I was born and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia, and afterwards I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, and stayed with him fifteen days. But I did not see any other apostle except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, The one who who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went in response to a revelation. Then I laid before them, though only in a private meeting with the acknowledged leaders, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not compelled to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. But because of false believers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might enslave us, we did not submit to them even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might always remain with you. And from those who were supposed to be acknowledged leaders, what they actually were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, Those leaders contributed nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognised the grace that had been given to me, They gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. So it's a very long text. It's hard to rack up into little bits. You know, it's a very um, one story. And so, oops. 
So it's a big chunk of Galatians to consider tonight. It seems a lifetime since we actually began doing this series, and up to part two, but um, hopefully you remember just one thing from the first talk, which is how in Galatians Paul is engaged in a struggle against the teaching of Jewish Christian opponents who had uh, come into the Galatian churches after Paul had left and were insisting that the Gentile believers, though mainly the Galatians that were, were Gentile converts, that these Gentile believers needed something extra uh, in order to belong. Uh, they clearly detested Paul and his influence, and so they sought to undermine the confidence of the Galatian believers in him to, to, to sort of um, <clears throat> chip away at their confidence in him by saying things like, uh, Paul is not actually a genuine apostle of Christ at all. He's a fraud. He's a self-appointed pretender. That he hasn't been endorsed by the big three apostles in Jerusalem, that's Peter, James and John, who actually opposed Paul's approach to the uh, mission to the Gentiles, the way that he was conducting himself. And they suggested clearly to them that Paul's version of the gospel they had accepted was actually a distortion. It was a lie because it omitted some crucial requirements to be assured of a membership of the of the um, of the Messianic community, be assured salvation, and membership of uh, Messianic Israel. So that was the kind of um, what's the, the the term for those working behind the scenes? The the can't remember what it is. The the, the way that they were trying to. Uh, get the Galatians to give up on the on the understanding of the gospel that they received from Paul by by attacking the messenger, a fifth column. That's the phrase I was looking for. Um, and so the first thing that Paul had to do in responding to this crisis in his churches, the first thing he had to do was to defend his own apostolic commissioning and the divine origin of his message. And he began doing this with the very first words that he wrote. So verse 1, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Later in the text that Peter has just read to us, he speaks of those who, quote, were already apostles before me. That's in verse 17. And elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, which is another autobiographical uh, passage where Paul talks about his experience, there he describes himself as the last of the apostles. So by this word apostle, Paul is claiming to belong to a defined and limited group of revered leaders in the early church that were recognized as the apostles of Jesus Christ. But his opponents, who had come into the churches after he had gone, fiercely rejected that claim. So Paul needed to explain and defend to his readers his apostolic credentials because everything else depended on it. If they lost belief in the messenger, then they're going to lose belief in the message. So the theme of apostleship looms very large in the big chunk of the text that Peter read to us. So why do you think it is that Paul found this uh, so important that he needed to devote such space to explaining 
um, his, his credentials. Well, the word apostle itself basically means one who is sent. One who is sent out as an envoy or a messenger or an emissary or an ambassador of a sending agent. So in the ancient world, and you, you pick this um, convention up a lot when you're alert to it, in the Gospels in particular, in the ancient world, an emissary or an envoy was regarded as the sort of personal extension or the personal manifestation of the sender. So when the envoy turned up, for all intents and purposes, the sender had turned up in, in, in this uh, messenger. And so the messenger had to be accorded the same status and respect that was owed to the sender. So think, for example, of the parable of the, of the wicked tenants in Mark 12, where the, the owner of the vineyard sends his, um, his messengers to collect the rent, and finally he sends his you know, supreme messenger, his son, and they kill him and beat him up and throw him out the, th- out the, out the vineyard. So the offence against the messenger was actually an offence against um, the sender. So, and this is a, a universal convention in the ancient world. In fact, it still is when you think about the way ambassadors and, and MPs and so on behave today. To receive and listen to the messenger was to receive and listen to the sender. To reject the messenger was to reject the sender. So Jesus often says things like, whoever listens to you listens to me. And whoever rejects you rejects me. And whoever rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So you see this sort of line of commissioning at work. So the word apostle then refers to the person who was sent, the envoy. It occurs around this, this word occurs around about 80 times in the New Testament and in a variety of contexts with a variety of nuances. But often it has a kind of general sense of an accredited representative or delegate of a particular congregation. Uh, or, 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 or an individual. And you could call these uh, sort of little a apostles because it was just another word I guess today we'd call them missionaries. Um, there weren't sort of any particular, any particular institutional role. They were just people who were representing a congregation or a sender. But the word is also used in a more technical sense for an authoritative group of revered leaders in the first generation church whose sender was Christ himself. So you call these sort of big A apostles. Uh, This this group um, provided a kind of authoritative link between the earthly life and teaching of Jesus and the foundation and instruction of the early church. So this group kind of had one foot on both sides of Easter. They'd been with Jesus in his life and ministry. They'd gone through the, the passion events. They'd, they'd um, been uh, there at the foundation of the church. And they sort of functioned as guarantors of the truthfulness of the stories and the teaching of Jesus. So in Luke's prologue, he refers to them as eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And he's probably referring there to to the apostles, uh, who handed on the traditions about Jesus and who attested to their veracity. So this is an important group of people who sort of provided us a link between the earthly Jesus and the risen Jesus in the, in the early church. 
How big was this group? Well, we don't know. Uh, it included the 12 disciples. It included James, the Lord's brother. That's the natural brother of Jesus. And it included a number of other disciples. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul talks about how he appeared to a number of other disciples that the risen Lord did. In fact, we can identify probably about 17 names in the, in the New Testament, including the 12 in James, so that's 13, uh, but 17 other names that probably belong to this, this group of, of apostles of the big A, including one in Romans 16 called Junia, who was a woman. So um, that kind of torpedoes the idea that women were sort of lesser in the leadership of the early church because this was a, a female apostle. But of this group, and who knows, maybe 20, maybe, maybe more, in this group, the ones who had particular prominence, Paul calls them here the acknowledged leaders, were Peter or Cephas, Peter, James and John. So they were, I'm calling them in this talk, the big three uh, in the Jerusalem church. So to belong to this, this limited group of big A apostles, this limited group of authoritative figures, seems to have required a combination of, of at least three things. One was personal knowledge of the earthly ministry and teaching of Jesus. So when they tried to replace Judas back in Acts 2, they looked for somebody who had been around uh, the discipleship group. So personal knowledge of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. The second was being a witness to the resurrection uh, prior to the ascension. And the third was a special commissioning by the risen Jesus himself. And I guess also important was the fact that others need to recognise the fact that you are part of this uh, this, I guess, elite group, if you like, uh, and you were successful in helping to form the early church. So, <clears throat> on these essential criteria, Paul did not qualify. He had not been a disciple of Jesus. Uh, he only knew of Jesus by the reputation that Jesus had, which Paul considered at the time, or Saul considered at the time, to be a malign one. Hadn't been a disciple of Jesus. He was not a witness to the resurrection. And in fact, he tried to silence those who were. And he had not been appointed by the risen Jesus prior to the ascension. So probably for those kinds of reasons, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 accepted that he is the least of the apostles. I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle, because they persecuted the church of God. But he was still adamant that he was a genuine apostle. So he goes on there, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me has not been in vain. So again, in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Galatians uh, 1 and 2, Paul is adamant and unyielding on this fundamental claim to being one of the apostles, that first generation group of people who were so important in the uh, establishment of the church. Why was he so adamant when others were contesting it? Because he could not deny the gracious initiative that God had taken toward him on the Damascus Road. And so in our text he says, But when God, 
who had set me apart before I was born, called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me so that I might proclaim among the Gentiles. I did not confer with any human being, but went away at once into Arabia, then returned to Damascus. This event happened, this Damascus Road event happened, long after the ascension. So the ascension was, what, 40 days was it? Um, after the resurrection? Uh, we don't exactly know when Paul had this experience, but it was probably between two and four years after the ascension. Uh, some people place it even even later. So it wasn't during that time when these appearances were happening, but Paul still considered it to be a resurrection appearance. So he says, last of all, he appeared to me. He goes through all the others and he says, last of all, he appeared to me. For Paul, it was not a vision. It was not a dream. It was not a hallucination. It was a unique appearance of the risen and glorified Jesus to, in his words, one untimely born. I wasn't around at the time this ought to have happened, but it still happened to me. It was unique in its timing and it was unique also in its purpose. The reason why this happened, Paul says, was so that I might proclaim him among the Gentiles. And it was that that set Paul apart from the other apostles. He was given this unique task of building a kind of two-way bridge between Messianic Israel and the rest of the world's nations. So when you read Romans 9 to 11, he's on that bridge. And he's trying to make sure that both parts of that bridge hold on to each other so that the Gentiles don't reject Israel and Israel does not reject the Gentiles. For Paul, this is crucially important. And he saw this as being the task that God had given to him. And because of this uniqueness of his task, Paul insists that his apostolic credentials had not been delegated to him and they were in no way subordinate to the big three in Jerusalem. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. It's the only reference to the resurrection in the Galatians. And it ties into his claim to apostleship. Then he goes on, I did not confer with any human being, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were already apostles before me, but I went away at once into Arabia. And then later on he says, In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. You know, it's like, this is not fake news, although that's what these opponents are telling you. I'm telling you the truth. This is how it happened. So for Paul, the Damascus Road event satisfied the two essential requirements for being an apostle, a witness to the resurrection and a personal commissioning by the risen Lord albeit in a distinctive way. What about the third requirement, which was personal knowledge of Jesus' life and teaching? Well, for Paul, he got that from the traditions that he received from others. So in 1 Corinthians 11, when he, he uh, talks about the Lord's Supper, and he, he goes back and talks about the night that Jesus was betrayed, he begins by saying, I passed on to you what I also received. This is a language of of tradition. I pass on to you the traditions that I also received from other 
people, and he tells a story of Jesus' uh, Last Supper. And I, I, I suspect that Paul schooled himself as thoroughly as he could in eyewitness testimony of others uh, who had been with Jesus. Initially at Damascus, uh, then in Antioch, where he spent or, 10 years with Barnabas. But then he says, after three years, I did go up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and stayed with him for 15 days. But I did not see any of the, any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Uh, it was once famously quipped about this that Paul did not spend the fortnight talking about the weather when he was with Peter and James, the Lord's brother. No doubt he quizzed them as much as he could about what their lived experience had been with Jesus before he was, um, before he died. But even more important to Paul than his commissioning was the divine validation of the gospel he received through it and the fact that this had been recognized by others. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was, that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin. For I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I did not learn the gospel from these other Christian teachers. Rather, I experienced the gospel through a revelation of God's risen Son to me. So prior to this unique experience that Paul had, and there was nothing else in Paul's life that came anywhere near to the Damascus Road event. He had lots of other mystical experiences. But there was nothing else that came anywhere near to what happened to him on the Damascus Road. Prior to that, Paul knew enough about the gospel to decide that it was a heresy that needed to be stamped out. He had enough knowledge about the kinds of things that these uh, Christians were saying that he concluded it needed to be violently suppressed. But on the Damascus Road, this gospel happened to him as a powerful event not just as a set of debatable theological ideas with which he had previously disagreed and was now persuaded, the event of the gospel happened as an experience or happened as an event and an experience. And through that experience, he said that the gospel was revealed to him, was taught to him through this revelation of Christ. I, I don't think... Paul is suggesting when he says that it was revealed to him that God dictated the gospel to him in propositional form, uh, like a new Moses on Mount Sinai. He didn't sit Paul down in Arabia and said, right, get out your pen, uh, chapter 1. It wasn't, I think, that kind of revelation. Rather, I think it was when Paul reflected back on the dramatic experience that he'd had, the central truths which he subsequently proclaimed to the Galatians and to everybody else who would listen, the central truths of the gospel stood out with unique clarity. And it doesn't take a lot of effort to sort of reason 
or put yourself into Paul's reasoning when this experience happened to him. Remember, he was actively involved at this point in trying to persecute the church, trying to silence it. Had this experience and everything changed. If the risen Jesus was now bathed in heavenly glory, then he must surely be God's awaited Messiah and God's unique son. If he had been vindicated by God after death, then clearly he wasn't a blasphemer because God wouldn't vindicate a blasphemer. He hadn't died for his own sins. He must have died for the sin of others. If Jesus had been raised from the dead, then the future age of resurrection that Jews like Paul, as a Pharisee, looked forward to at the end of the age, that future age must have already commenced in some way, in some unexpected way. It must have already begun, moving creation into a new gear as, as, the, as the first sort of um, ray of this new creation sun was shining again. If the risen Christ had identified himself with the persecuted church, why do you persecute me, he says in, in the Acts story, then the church must somehow be the extension, even the embodiment of the risen Christ on earth. But most strikingly of all for Paul, if God had graciously revealed the gospel to him, a fanatical persecutor, a murderer of Christians, if God had graciously revealed the gospel to me, then human merit and desert can have nothing to do with it. And if my previous devotion to defending the Torah, defending God's law, had led me to actually oppose and persecute Christ himself, God himself, then relying on the Torah in particular can have nothing to do with it either. And that being the case, which must have struck Paul like you know, a thunderclap, that being the case, there can be no reason to exclude lawless Gentiles from the scope of God's saving mercy without requiring anything of them to prove their merit or their worth. And that was Paul's distinctive emphasis. The sheer radicality of which, the sheer radicalness of which, you simply cannot overstate. It's, I mean, we're on Paul's side of history, but if you put yourself back into uh, the context of Paul, then the sheer earth-shattering reality of this, uh, or distinctiveness of this claim, we really can't overstate. And for Paul, all this flowed directly from the logic of his own experience. It didn't come from the big three in Jerusalem. It came directly from the divine source. And that's the point he's really hammering home in this passage. And yet at the same time as wanting to insist that his commissioning was independent of Peter, James and John and, and, and the, the Jerusalem leaders, at the same time, Paul also insists that the validity of his experience and the validity of his interpretation of that experience 
had also been endorsed by the leading apostles in Jerusalem. And so he provides this kind of brief travelogue of what happened after the event. So after the Damascus Road event, he said he went straight away into Arabia. We don't know why, and we don't know for how long. But then after a period in Arabia, he went back to Damascus, where he worked with the church there. Then three years later, he says, he made his first visit to Jerusalem, where he spent this fortnight with Peter and James, which gave him the chance both to meet the two closest companions of Jesus, I mean, his closest disciple and his own sibling, but also it gave him the chance to allay suspicion about the genius of his conversion. So he says, I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard it said, the one who formerly was persecuting us is now proclaiming the same faith he once tried to destroy. So he went back to Jerusalem three years later. Then he said he spent the next 10 years, that's quite a long time, (laughs) uh, the next 10 years in Syria and Cilicia, where he was based at Antioch. Uh, working with Barnabas. Then, he says, 14 years later, he returned to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, where, quote, in a private meeting, I laid before the acknowledged leaders the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So you can see what Paul is saying is, you know, although my commissioning comes through this unique independent source, I am not a lone ranger. It's important to Paul that the Jerusalem church embraced his mission because ultimately what Paul was committed to was the uniting of Jew and Gentile in Christ, that bridge that I've talked about before. And Paul knew that if his Gentile outreach was rejected by the Jerusalem church and its leaders. And if his law-free strategy of reaching Gentiles in particular was rejected, then all his efforts towards creating this unique or this blended community of Jew and Gentile, all his efforts would be in vain. So he had this private meeting with uh, James, Peter and John. And whenever they said in private, there were other loud voices in the Jerusalem church who were deeply suspicious of Paul and his gospel. Paul speaks of false brothers who had infiltrated the church and who were strongly objecting to the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, the freedom from the law that we have in Christ Jesus. And it appears, I mean, the text is a wee bit, a wee bit sort of um, 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 blunt, it's a bit sort of compressed, so it's not completely clear, but it appears that these false brothers, as Paul calls them, tried to compel Titus, who was a Greek, who was a Gentile, tried to compel Titus to be circumcised. And Paul said that he fiercely resisted this in principle. He may have done it voluntarily, but Paul resisted, as a matter of principle, the demand that Titus, who travelled with them, needed to be circumcised. Now, who were these false brothers? 
Well, they may have been. They may have been Jewish unbelievers who are masquerading as followers of Christ, who are sort of trying to gather evidence to oppose the church. But it's much more likely, in fact, I'd say almost certainly, that they were an ultra-conservative faction in the church who held, in Paul's mind, false views about the truth of the gospel, who lobbied hard with these leaders for, uh, for their more conservative understanding of the gospel. Paul later in Galatians calls them those of the circumcision or the circumcision faction. Now, this group in the Jerusalem church was probably quite a sizable and significant lobby group because in Acts we hear about how a great many priests and Pharisees had been joining the church. A great, as Acts 6 and again in Acts 15, a great many priests and Pharisees were being uh, recruited, I guess, to, to the church. And those were groups that had strong purity instincts. I mean, the Pharisees, uh, the, the priests in particular, because that was their whole job, was to, to maintain the purity code. And the Pharisees who sort of emulated the, the, the priests in everyday life. So these were groups that had very strong uh, understanding about the need to retain uh, uh, ritual purity. And they had what uh, James himself in Acts calls a zealousness for the law. And no doubt they brought this into the Christian community and they continued to frame their understanding of, of Jesus as the Messiah and of what, what the, the church actually was. And almost certainly the, the, the opponents that uh, travelled to Galatia and were now causing trouble amongst the Christians uh, in Galatia uh, came from the same group, the same circumcision faction, the same conservative uh, faction within the Jerusalem church, the traditionalist faction. And they probably told the Galatians that the acknowledged leaders, that's Peter, James and John, actually had opposed Paul's version of the gospel. That Paul had been lying to you. Maybe that's why Paul says, I am not lying. This is I'm actually telling you the truth. Paul says that while Peter, James and John contributed nothing to me, in other words, they had nothing to do with my commissioning and my understanding of the gospel, nonetheless... When they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel for the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me and sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. Just three things to observe about that summary of this, this meeting that, that he had with the big three. The first is that he says they recognised that God had entrusted Paul with a unique task. They didn't agree to commission him themselves. They didn't sort of agree to appoint him to this role. Rather, Paul says, they recognized the grace that had been given to me and they validated the authenticity of his, of his peculiar 
apostolic commissioning. Paul also says that they endorsed his Gentile mission as being equally valid as Peter's Jewish mission. And that included an agreement that the Gentiles could forego any requirement to be circumcised. And this was a major, I I suspect, even an agonizing concession that they made. Yet they felt compelled to acknowledge what God was doing through Paul, whether they liked it or not, whether they understood it or not, uh, whether it was going to last or not. They felt compelled to acknowledge that what God was doing through Paul was of equal merit as what God was doing through Peter in the Jewish community. And the third thing from the summary is that they affirmed the oneness of the gospel and the unity of the church. Both Jewish and Gentile expressions of the gospel came from the same God and are inspired by the same saving events. So the big three, my term, acknowledged leaders, Paul's term, the big three extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul and Barnabas, expressing a a solidarity and a, a shared participation in the same messianic movement. And in return, they asked Paul and Barnabas for one thing, which was to continue sending material support to the Jerusalem church, which lived on the margins of subsistence. So when Paul says they asked only one thing that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was already eager to do. The poor there is the Jerusalem church. It was the community in Jerusalem that was um, really on the margins of, of, of existence. We know that there was, there was um, famines in Palestine at this stage. We suspect that the, the, uh, the, 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 the Jews who had joined the, the Messianic community were probably being marginalized from the Jewish welfare system. And so they, they, were, they were the poor. And they said, well, just, you know, we just want you to continue to send you, from, you and Barnes from the Church of Antioch to continue sending uh, relief to your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And Paul says, I was eager to do that anyway. And he was eager not just because this was something that he could do as an act of love. For Paul, this relationship between the church in Antioch uh, and the Gentile churches in general and the church in Jerusalem was this bridge that he wanted to hold on to. It was a symbol of the of the undying connection between the Gentile mo- uh, movement and the Jewish church. And we know that from Paul's letter, he spent a lot of his later ministry uh, uh, in what he called the collection for the saints. You've read St. Corinthians, he's encouraging them to contribute. Um, and again, in Romans, he refers to it. Uh, this, this, this collection is going to take to Jerusalem as an offering to the poor there, as an offering from the Gentile church. So this was a pretty remarkable event uh, that he's referring to here. The big three uh, endorsed what Paul was doing and, and they, they acknowledged that they were in this together and that God was at work through his work as much as his work through theirs. So it was a remarkable affirmation by them. Of course, it didn't solve all the problems that were going to occur from the emergence of this mixed ethnic 
Christian community. Yes, Paul could continue to preach to the Gentiles. He could continue to impart the Spirit to the Gentiles. He could continue to plant congregations that included the Gentiles without imposing circumcision or food laws upon them. But how these two groups, observant Jews and non-observant Gentiles, were going to crack on together in daily life, who knows? I mean, it was a time bomb waiting to explode. And, uh, you know, exploded in Rome. And the, the Romans is, is addressing the tension between these two uh, sides of the church. I wondered when I was putting this together whether the Jerusalem leaders saw the support they gave to the law-free gospel that Paul was proclaiming as a kind of temporary concession in light of what God was doing. And maybe they hoped that when the Gentiles reached spiritual maturity, they would themselves come to see the importance of Torah observance uh, on their own own accord and would freely choose to be circumcised and to observe food laws and to observe purity laws and to observe the Sabbath and so on, to observe the kind of norms for the Messianic community, all the Jerusalem uh, believers, all the, all the Jewish believers were observing. And maybe they thought, well, you know, for now, it's okay, they can come in, but they'll, they'll, they'll grow up, you know, they'll, they'll come to see that this sort of stuff is really important. I don't know, that's just, that's just a guess. Uh, and when we get um, to look at the next uh, passage where Paul has his argument with Peter over these issues, it's clearly it wasn't an easy thing for them to come to terms with. But Paul's radicalism was more thoroughgoing than that. It wasn't just a pragmatic compromise. For Paul, it was a non-negotiable outcome of this new creation that God had achieved uh, in Christ. So let me just draw these these, uh, threads together. Paul's struggle with his opponents in Galatia over the validity of his apostolic commission and the validity of his circumcision-free gospel uh, may seem pretty unrelatable to us. Uh, Nobody denies Paul's apostolic authority today, as far as I know. No churches today, as far as I know, ever split over circumcision. Uh, or uh, other ritual requirements of the Torah, or over Sabbath observance. I mean, you know, you don't have to go very far back to know that Sabbath observance was a really important thing with some Christians. So the actual presenting issues that Paul is struggling with here are not our issues at all. But the convictions that drove Paul's radicalism, the underlying what he would call truths of the gospel, I think, do remain essential. And I want to just pick out three concepts that, that are, are already in play uh, in his response to the situation in Galatia. The first is the concept of grace. Paul sees his apostolic commissioning as pure grace when James and Cephas and John recognize the grace that had been given to me. 
Grace, as we all know, is one of Paul's most foundational concepts. It's used already four times in the first chapter and a half of Galatians. The word itself denotes a gift or a favour or an act of goodwill. And it could simply be translated as gift. And we translate it as grace and already assumes a kind of special sort of theological depth. But it really is just a word for gift or for generosity or for gratitude. I mean, we call it the Eucharist, the word grace, is right in the middle of Eucharist. Charis is, is the Greek word. So it's a word that denotes giving, a gift that is given. Paul sees Jesus as God's gift to the world. And he sees Christ's death on the cross as a self-giving for us. So he says, grace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, who gifted himself for our sins. What Paul most emphasizes about God's gift is its unmerited and undeserved nature. So there's been a very big book written on this called just called The Gift um, about the way gift working worked uh, anthropologically in, in the ancient world. In the ancient world, gifts should be given only to those who deserve the gift. Because I guess the person who received the gift is a bit of a, a reflection on the giver. You, know, you choose the person who is worthy of the gift because it also highlights your, your worth in giving this gift. But for Paul, what he emphasizes about God's gift is that it is given to the utterly unworthy, the utterly undeserving. And for Paul, this fact had major theological and sociological implications. The fact that God had given himself to those who did not deserve the gift, for Paul, had a whole lot of uh, reverberations that needed to be followed through at a practical level. So the word grace is one of the things that drives Paul's radicalism. One of the implications that he sees from this is the notion or the, or the experience of freedom. So this is another key term uh, in Galatians. Paul says that the purpose of Christ's self-giving death was to set us free from this evil age. Verse 4, to set us free from the present evil age. And the verb there has a sense of to snatch us free, to snatch us away from the powers of the, evil, of the present, uh, present evil age. So Paul sees the human condition as one of enslavement to malignant cosmic powers, which he usually calls sin with a capital S. You know, it's not sins plural. It's this sort of dark force that holds humanity in its grip. And he understands God's redemptive act as an act of liberation. Now, we tend to think of it as an act of forgiveness, that God forgives people for their sins. Uh, and that's, that's part of it. But Paul hardly ever talks about forgiveness. He talks a lot about liberation, that God has acted to liberate people from the grip of, uh, of this, this cosmic power 
that controls our present creation. And one pernicious form of this bondage that humans are subject to is the way that they tie or we tie human worth and dignity to some arbitrary secondary quality like ethnicity or class or gender or religion or education or wealth or appearance or status or achievement or whatever it is. We tie our sense of worth to those secondary uh, aspects of being human. And as we said last time, that when we do that, and humans always do that, we, I mean, universally we do that, it, it, it's, it's inherently exclusionary because some people don't qualify for the thing that we're privileging. And also it has a crippling impact on a sense of self-worth because we are vulnerable to feeling shame because we do not measure up to the standards of worth that we see as being important. And Paul sees how God's undeserved gift of grace brings freedom from that need to measure up to some secondary quality, which is why he describes his opposition to circumcision as the freedom we have in Christ Jesus, because they're free from having to match up to the standard of merit that circumcision uh, constituted within the Jewish community. It's not a moral merit, but it's a kind of, uh, kind of ethnic uh, distinctiveness. We're free from that because of the gift of Christ, which comes without that kind of expectation. And the third, the third concept, so grace, freedom, the third one, just to, to flag, is the, is the notion of love. Because while love, the noun love does, uh, doesn't occur in our text so far, in the text that we've read tonight, it's implicit in this request that, they re- that, that the, uh, the church remembers the poor. And later, Paul will speak of how, uh, of how central love is in uniting this community. So in chapter 5, verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. The only thing that counts is faith working through love. Faith energized through love. Faith made active through love. The reason why love is so important is because God's gracious self-giving in Christ is for Paul the supreme demonstration of God's love. And in a verse which I always find incredibly moving, and and, uh, we'll talk about it next time, later on in Galatians 2.19, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. In the life I now live, I live in the flesh by faith in the the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's not he loved everybody and gave himself for everybody. He loved me and gave himself for me. I think it's it's very, I find that really moving. And what better way is there to think of the kind of life that we are called to as followers of, of Jesus than a life of grace, a life of freedom, and a life of love. And these are the, 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 the three uh, big ideas, I guess, that fueled Paul's absolutely mind-boggling radicalism in his day.